Greetings, comrades and friends. Uh, we're here again in Highlands Bunker. We're in the shadow of Rockford Tower. We're behind enemy lines. We're in the belly of the beast. And we're also under quarantine. Um, we've just we've just gone to DEFCON 2. Um, I know you guys don't know what that means, but uh, what it means here is, number one, we're on emergency weed protocol. So I'm into... Uh, you know the strategic reserve. Everything's fine, but you know it's a it's a, it's a stressful time about that. Uh, also, Carl is on the knobs tonight, but in a remote location, uh, just north of uh, the Brandywine River. I won't say any more. He's safe. We'll just say that. Well, today um, we got some some bad news. We knew it was coming. Uh, Bernard uh, dropped out of the race. Uh, the battle continues. Um, you guys know that um, I talked about Tony Ben a few episodes ago. Um, I think I think when I talked to Marie Pinckney. But uh, we have to toughen up. These battles uh, really never end. Um, but it's hard for me not to uh, feel any kind of sort of cynicism. So I read something online today that I think is going to help me. And, and maybe it will help you all. And I just want to read it. Uh, this was uh, posted by the novelist uh, A.R. Moxon. Uh, he's written a new novel called The Revisionaries, which I've read the first 250 pages of twice. <clears throat> so this is what he says. I'm coming to the conclusion our biggest problem isn't people of bad intention. It's an attitude of pre-defeated cynicism called, quote, realism, which as practitioners consider wisdom which only thinks of reasons why things won't get better and refuses to imagine ways that it can. If somebody suggests a solution to a problem and the problem is real and the solution is necessary and your first response is to explain why the solution is impossible under present conditions rather than to think of ways to change conditions, you are abetting the problem. It does double harm. First, it certifies the present conditions as inevitable and immutable, as the way it needs to be, as what's, quote, real. Second, it drains energy from people of resolve and imagination. There's little more demoralizing than one who only agrees with you in principle. People of bad intention have led us to this bad place. Not, that, not to say we were in a good, great, or perfect place before, but we're in a worse place. And not because we're always here, but because they believe they could get us here by imagining it and fighting for it. Their, quote, unrealistic belief that they could force a change to circumstances to lead us from a better place to a worse one is their advantage. It's an advantage we give up by insisting on being realistic. The only sure thing in the world is changing circumstances. Tomorrow will be different than today. We can imagine it better, or we can cling to the realism of present circumstance and cede the great unrealistic power of imagination that different, uh, to, to different people with bad intentions. Believing the situation as it stands now is the way it's always going to be, or that circumstances cannot be changed by imagining it and then working for it with determination 
is the most unrealistic belief I can imagine. Every realist I talk to seems to believe it, though. All right, so my guests tonight are uh, a returning champion, Cheyenne Miller. Uh, she's a local activist and organizer. Uh, she's the president of the uh, Delaware chapter of the board of the Coalition to Dismantle the New Jim Crow. Um, how are you today? Doing great. Thanks for welcoming me back. Of course. Uh, and with her is... Uh, a uh, professor at the University of Delaware uh, in Human Development and Family Studies, uh, Anne Avilas. Anne, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you guys coming in. Um, as I mentioned, Cheyenne's been on before, but what I, what I like to do is give you guys the opportunity to sort of talk about your background and what brought you to this kind of work. Um, because I think it's usually a very interesting story uh, and things that sort of inspire people from all different sort of backgrounds to come to it. Um, so, um, Cheyenne, I guess you, you were on but didn't get the chance. So uh, where did you grow up and what was it like and what kind of brought you to the kind of work you do? Yeah, um, I grew up here in Wilmington, uh, all over Wilmington. I was one of those kids that moved all the time um, and went to tons of different schools and, you know, a lot of my, uh, my earlier days, I, I really was interested in something that felt like it was completely different than where I am now. I was really interested in the environment, really interested in how we can make sure that, you know, the animals were saved and all that cute stuff. So when I went to get my um, undergrad degree in wildlife conservation, I was hit really hard with a lot of the equity issues um, that plague just the environmental field. And as I dug deeper, I started to realize that, um, we weren't going to get too far in any of our fights if we did not start to look at the issue of race and racism and class. Um, if we if we didn't look at those, we just weren't going to get too far in our fight, including my 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 original passion of saving the environment. Um, and so, skip many years, and what led me to this is that I've always had an interest in ensuring that um, our communities were developed in a way that uh, is equitable. Um, that's anti-racist, that's anti-classist, and there hasn't been a lot of that happening in the city that I've grown up in, and I'm not very happy about it. So obviously I wanted to, rather than complain and not do anything, just get involved, help do some community organizing so that there's more of um, a say from myself and my neighbors about how we want our communities to look and how we want them to be accessible, open, affordable, and things like that. Yeah, that's it. Cool. So, Anne, um, welcome uh, to the show. And uh, where where did you grow up? What was it? Uh, what was it like? And um, how did you find yourself uh, becoming an academic in this field and becoming an activist? So, I am. Um, this is my fourth year, I believe, in Delaware. I am originally from Chicago, uh, born and raised. And um, as you may or may not know, Chicago is one of the most segregated cities in the nation, unfortunately. Um, a lot of my interest uh, came, I think, similar to 
Cheyenne sharing from personal experience around having some access to some degree, you know, coming up um, fortunately in a stable uh, household, family, all that good stuff, but seeing that that was not the norm. And so I think as I realized that more um, through family experiences, you know, through schooling, things of that nature, um, I just realized, I think, um, I know I'm repeating some of what Cheyenne said, that if we do not address inequities around health, around education, around housing, in particular in their relationship to race and class, then we were only putting a Band-Aid on really systems that are in need of radical change. And so um, I think I came into the work with a very naive lens around, um, quote unquote, helping people and realized very quickly that helping people is important, but changing systems is what will really force, um, or I should say reduce the number of people that need help. And um, how do we change systems so that people have dignity, so that people have access, because oftentimes it is these systems that are dehumanizing and oppressive that do not allow people to realize their full potential. Um, so definitely I come from a, very strength-based or asset-based model, recognizing that people have capacity and they have power, but unfortunately systems don't allow those to come to fruition. Yeah. So uh, the, the housing opportunity, mobility, equity, and stability, Cheyenne made me memorize that, um, the Homes Campaign. Um, how did you guys get together on it? Um, uh, and what was the sort of the genesis of it? Uh, and what did it come out of? I, I'm just interested in how it all came together. Yeah. So last time when we uh, talked, when I was last on Highlands Bunker, I was making a big stink about the um, the bill that was out that was going to kind of make a lot of changes into how code violations were given. Uh, we called it the blight bill for yes. short. Um and obviously I was totally against it and very angry and I still am <laughs> and don't want it to come back. But essentially, you know, what we found was that um, the organizing that we were doing against the blight bill, um, it was, it was one thing that we knew we were going to stop. And as much as we asked and really requested that the uh, current administration and that the city council would accept some changes to the bill that might make a, a, a an improvement upon it, we were so like we were just totally unable to get any any leeway in terms of making amendments to that bill that would improve it um and we kind of realized that after a while that improvements to that bill probably wouldn't even make it something that we do want in our community either way and so we started thinking really deeply um me and many other community members uh started thinking like what are we going to do to kind of go, you know, and start thinking broadly and widely about what is it that our community wants to look like um, and what else should we be fighting for, not just fighting against. Um, we had kind of won the fight against the blight bill, though there, I believe, are attempts to try to bring it back. Um, but we had essentially won the fight against the blight bill, but we were still kind of like, did we really win anything if we just like stopped something from happening? What really changed about Wilmington? Um, so we, we, we kind of were like, hey, let's get back together. Let's talk. Um, about the next steps of what we want to see the city become and what issues we really want to push to make sure that, you know, housing is 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 top list and, and top of the um, mind when people think of like, you know, if I want to improve my city, this is what this is one of the ways I can do it. 
And what are the ways that we're going to galvanize our neighbors? Um, we use the word residents a lot here, um, but like our, our residents here in the city of Wilmington who live here, who work here, who play here, um, that, you know, we need to get them more involved in something that's more constructive. Um, and that's what the campaign is. The campaign is a much more constructive view um, as opposed to just being against something as where we started, you know, we've kind of morphed into an organization, if you will, or a campaign, if you will, that focuses more on what the city can be and how the city can be. Um, and, and that's generally where we want to go. We want to stay that way. And hopefully it'll get to the point where we are out of business. We've done it <laughs> and we will never have to worry about this again. It's a long way ahead, but um, one day we'll get there. And that's the goal. Yeah. So before we um, go into the, the program because I attended the kickoff and it was um, it was actually incredible. It was well attended, a bunch of breakout sessions, the whole thing. But um, <clears throat> let's review just the blight bill and sort of um, what we, as you said, stopped from happening. Uh, and I know uh, you wrote a very long uh, commentary and op-ed in the paper about it sort of at the time, uh, one of the times that it had come back up uh, in front of the council. Uh, can you give everybody uh, sort of a, a summary of sort of what it was and how, while the intentions, while there was good intentions, that it really wasn't going to solve uh, the problems of, of cost uh, and, and some of the other problems that, <clears throat> that are happening in these communities that don't have proper housing? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I think, yeah, this is definitely how Cheyenne and I have come to kind of... Um, team up and say like, how are we gonna address these issues? Um, for me, the blight bill, I, was, I wasn't a part of the initial conversations around the blight bill. I don't, um, I'm not from Wilmington, as I said, so um, getting plugged in takes a little bit of time. So I'm really glad that now I'm able to kind of use um, tools, knowledge that I have to support these efforts. Um, but before I was connected to Holmes' campaign, as I was learning about the Blight Bill, just, you know, from reading it in the paper and kind of what was happening, um, being from Chicago, there has been so much gentrification that has really obliterated affordable housing across the city. And it has disproportionately impacted Black and Brown communities in Chicago. So when I read the Blight Bill, um, just alarms went off for me in my head. And I was like, oh, this this sounds like gentrification. <laughs> um, I think the language always is nice. They talk about access. They talk about, you know, reducing blight so that the neighborhood looks nice. The question for me is, but nice for who? Um, so as I dug a little bit deeper into the blight bill and, and you know, through other uh, community folks that I was in conversation with, what I realized is that increasing fines and fees <clears throat> for, um, I, this is tricky, and I know this is a, a sticky part of the bill. Homeowners, I just want to recognize, is different from large corporations that come in and buy a property and then just sit on it waiting for the community to change um, so then they can basically flip it and, and sell it for a profit. So we're seeing this happening um, definitely in California, right, where you just have these corporations that are just buying up property and you have homelessness that's just kind of off the rails. So I just want to recognize that there are homeowners who are good landlords who are trying their best to improve their property and keep up, you know, with the needs of tenants and residents who will 
be negatively impacted by these increases in fines and fees, which then they will be forced to place that burden onto renters. And so those are the folks that I was really thinking about is people who are already at a disadvantage, right? Who do not have, um, you know, who are working in jobs that are low wage that do not allow them to really have mobility, right? Of any sort, really. How can, how can I, what is the word I'm looking for? In what ways can I call attention to what seems like a quote unquote good gesture, but ultimately will have these negative impacts. So for me, thinking about these systems and structures of uh, racial equity or inequity, I should say racial and class inequity is thinking about how do we address structural conditions that are creating and maintaining poverty, right? How do we develop legislation that stops and then reverses the racial violence, the structural violence, right? That uh, really perpetuates these inequities around housing um, because research shows that um, households should only spend about 30% of their income on their rent and utilities. But um, looking at that racial equity, um, what was it, Prosperity Now, right, did a, a piece on Wilmington and really highlighted these racial uh, and class disparities. And so I really wanted to bring that to the forefront to help people see how on the surface, this bill sounds good, but if we really think about the implications in particular for poor black and brown folks in the city, it's definitely gonna be detrimental and lead to more um, housing instability, lead to more homelessness. Um, and so that was really what I was trying to get across in that op-ed. Yes, um, you know, as you probably know by now, uh, Wilmington has, you know, uh, not it's not unique, but it's 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 pretty acute uh, sort of rule by um, by corporate real estate, um, and the I'll, I'll mention it now. The episode that Cheyenne was on uh, earliest episode thirty three. We also had an academic uh, and author on uh, Samuel Stein who wrote a book called Capital City uh, that's called uh, Gentrification and the Real Estate State, and sort of the part the the point. Uh, you know, that I was trying to make is that we have a real estate state. And so you can look at things that have, you know, what what appear on the surface as the best intentions, as you say, you know, um, there's some cleanup and there's some, uh, you know, there's some what you would call like accountability for people, which people like. Um, but there's no real demarcation between, uh, you know, owners that own a few houses on a block or have owned things a long time and corporations. Uh, and there's also always embedded in it some method of transfer from, you know, sort of either public hands or, or individuals' hands to private corporate hands. Uh, so there's always some mechanism to do that. And I think people don't see it and, you know, Go back to what Cheyenne said. Yeah, I mean, we really didn't win anything. Um, but I think just the fact that we're continuing to have these arguments and we're stopping this now um, is some hope for the future that people are becoming more and more aware of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I do. Um, I, I think awareness is definitely the first step. But to Cheyenne's point, once people are aware, what do we do to arm them with the information, the tools? right, the advocacy, the organizing that's needed to then 
prevent further harm, right? So I think it's also generating solutions. And I think one of the shortcomings of many of uh, many initiatives is that they don't include the people who are actually impacted. And I know for us, that's something we're really thinking about is how do we get people that are unhoused, right, involved so that they are the ones determining what is best um, because they are the ones who have to navigate these systems and live this every day. Yeah, and that brings us to, right, you know, um, we sort of organized around one thing to stop something, but now, as Cheyenne said, you've moved into this into this program, uh, uh, Homes, and I attended the uh, the kickoff, which was, I guess, six weeks ago, eight weeks ago. I'm losing track of time because of the because of the uh, quarantine, but uh, the kickoff was at the the Wilmington Library on on Rodney Square, and it was attended by uh, had to be hundreds of people. Um, so yeah, let us so talk about sort of the background, what you're trying to accomplish, and we can talk about sort of what we learned at the kickoff. Yeah, so the Homes Campaign, um, we were doing tons of planning beforehand, tons of outreach. We did a lot of canvassing beforehand because we wanted to use the kickoff as kind of a point where we actually gathered information, um, as opposed to kind of sitting and giving people tons of data and numbers on like what's housing and how terrible housing is in the city. We hope that residents would actually attend and actually be able to give us the opportunity to um, hear from them about what they consider to be issues. We, we obviously know that housing is a huge subject. And so when we were out and asking people um, to join us, we were kind of framing it to them that, you know, we're going to ask you to join in this meeting. That's an hour and a half or so um, at, at, you know, the Wilmington Library at, on like February 26th or something like that before we all had to stay inside for the pandemic. Um, and we were really asking people to join if they had an issue area that they cared about that was specific to the four pieces of the Homes Campaign. And those four pieces of the Homes Campaign are um, making sure that we have affordable renter opportunities, so rentership, if you will, um, making sure that we were dealing with homeowners in an equitable way allowing people who owned homes to stay in their homes, as well as making sure that people actually have real opportunities to um, come into ownership, so fair opportunities for home ownership. We also were really interested in the re-entering population. So people who are coming out of prison obviously have a lot of housing issues, and those housing issues are rarely, um, they're rarely easy to overcome, and there are not a lot of opportunities for them to find housing that is accessible, that is safe, that is going to help, if you will, in terms of bringing them back into society, however you, you know, want to frame it. And then the last thing we cared about, um, definitely not least, is eradicating homelessness. Um, so not reducing, not just, you know, let it, let it down a little bit. We want to eradicate it. We have a, um, a mindset that housing is a human right. It is one of our mottos. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty other models we got, but the motto that we set our our um, campaign by is is that housing is a human right. And it sounds extreme, but it's really not. It's really not. <laughs> um, yeah, so when the campaign kicked off, I can say this, we actually had around 130 people. Um, I was really excited. A, a lot of those people were unhoused. Um, so people who, who do not have a roof over their head, which is um, a lot, it was, it was difficult for us because coming back to the idea that we wanna be able to bring residents in, um, we, we learned a lot about what it means to want to bring residents in. Um, specifically, learned a lot about 
you know, if we are going to have unhoused people there, then we need to ensure that we're providing lunch or dinner. We need to ensure that they can actually get back into a uh, shelter. So if you do not get to, I believe it's like five o'clock, if you don't get to the Sunday breakfast mission or something like that, you don't just miss out on dinner, but you might not get in for the night and then you're sleeping outside. Um, and those are things that we had to learn from our partners. Um, Michael Combat from the from the Creative Vision Factory really helped lay these things out for us in terms of what we need to do. But it was definitely a learning curve. Um, but yeah, what else do you want to know about the, uh, the lunch? Can yeah, I, I'm well, sorry. Can I? I just want to jump in and add a quick caveat. Of course. Um, just because I think um, when we think unhoused, um, which I think is a much better term right, in terms of people who don't have access to safe, stable housing. But I also wanna, um, and this, some people see this as semantics, but I do think it's really important is that there's this misconception that a person who experiences homelessness does not have an actual physical place to be, but they can also be experiencing housing instability. So they can be staying in different homes with different friends and family members. Maybe they're kind of bouncing between a shelter and a cousin's and then over to the grandma's. I just think it's important that we really recognize that safe, stable, stable housing makes a huge difference in people's mental health, in their well-being, in their education. You know, when we think about children, in their ability to um, regularly, you know, show up for their jobs. Um, so I just think there's so much that people don't think about in terms of especially that mental health. What does it mean to everyday worry? Where is my next meal coming from? Am I going to be able to stay at my friend's house again? Or have I outstayed my welcome and now I got to go to the shelter or maybe go, you know, back to my cousins or whatever it might be. So I just think, um, I just really want to point that out because I think that many times when people think homeless, they have that stereotypical notion that person who's living on the street um, or in a shelter, but it could also be people who just don't have their own housing that's stable. And so they're just constantly moving around. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I want to, um, to focus on that first, really. There's a couple things. I mean, there was, there was four breakout sessions, I guess, at the kickoff um, for renters and I guess homeowners and, and landlords and, but also for uh, homeless uh, unhoused folks. And I actually sat in on that one and took notes. I'm uh, Michael Kambach and I are sort of old friends. And um, yeah, so it was fun to work with him. He was on a, an episode with us and we've, we've, you know, sort of been aware of his work and, and involved in it for a long time. And it was really profound to just sit in on that and, and allow people to sort of give feedback and just talk about sort of what their situation was because it's not straightforward at all. Um, it's, you know, if like a lot of issues like this, if people really sat down, if it, if it affected them in some way or they were able to like put a story to it, I think they would be, it would be very profound because people don't appreciate, as you said, that these situations are um, very complicated and they, they really hit close to home. It's not some sort of um, far away thing you know, um, there before the grace of, uh, something, you know, we could be there. Um, so let's talk about that. So, um, what sort of, so what I remember taking notes for, um, is just people telling their stories 
um, what some of the things that help would help them, um, some of the solidarity they feel through the Creative Visions Factory. Um, and we had a sort of a, a conversation that, that Michael led with a few other folks. Um, but what, what, kind of, what kind of information were you looking to get from that? And, and, um, and, and what information did you get from it? And what are you sort of what kind of moves are you thinking to make for that, per, that particular one? Yeah, and jump in because um, I know we, we, we're still working. So the whole point of the entire uh, launch was to get information from those four different areas that we talked about, uh, renters, homeowners, uh, people who are reentering from prison and homeless populations. And specifically um, within that homeless population, you know, for all four of these, but within the homeless population too, we wanted to get policy, um, policy guidance. Like where are we going to head as a, as a city um, in terms of what we want things to look like for this population. And part of what we wanted our discussion to kind of focus on was making sure that people understood that, you know, the, the way we get there, the way that we um, get to that, you know, pie in the sky of, you know, housing is a human right and everyone is housed is going to require some systemic shifts in how we do things, how we allocate money um, and decisions that are made. So we, we, I was hoping, you know, for all these sessions that we would really be able to pull out some real key, what do we want to see happen in, in the city of Wilmington and what are the ideas for how we can get there? Um, really the entire purpose of the homeless part portion is to eradicate it. It should not be a thing. Um, whether you are a family of four that is losing their home and has to sleep in your car or a family or an individual who has an addiction, um, you know, suffers from the disease of addiction and, and just can't keep, keep a roof over your head, no matter what the situation is, there should be some way for us to be able to capture that person before they are couch surfing, before they are out on the street, before they are um, living underneath of, you know, a stranger's roof or a, friend, a distant friend's roof or a cousin's roof. And so if we're able to do that, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, what we got out of that will help us get there. A lot of great ideas did come out of it. Um, between Michael Kahnbach and um, Deborah Gilbert White. She runs Her Story Ensemble. I think there were some awesome ideas. Um, and then the residents came through and just like really gave this, you know, this, I think, riveting idea of like the city could do better. The city needs to do better. And we're real people. We're not just, you know, we're not monsters sleeping on the street. We're not, you don't disrespect us. We, we want to be, we want to be seen as, uh, as, as residents, you know, as people who live here that deserve respect. But on a, on a policy level, um, briefly, like the shifts that I think we're looking for is a lot of people have asked this question and I know there's an answer to it in the world. I don't think there's an answer that we are all gonna enjoy, but some people were asking the question of like, how do you have so many vacant homes in the city of Wilmington and so many people living on the streets? Um, and that'll be the first, if you live in the city of Wilmington, your first question might be like, what is going on with all these vacant houses, houses that have no occupants in them. And yet we have all of these uh, homeless people. Um, and like, honestly, like, it sounds like one of those questions that like, oh, we all throw it out there. And you know, what you, you write about the realist, the realist would say, well, you know, in reality, we really couldn't send all of those technically owned homes to these people who don't own them. But in, in, in you know, the world of homes, the question becomes, well, why not? What, what could we do to get those homes into the hands of people who are homeless? Um, or what could we do to transform that land that those homes sit on 
into spaces that are humane shelter, humane shelter. So not like disrespectful um, spaces where you may not be able to lay your head in peace, if you will, or have strict right. rules that require you to follow, um, that are required for you to follow if you want to stay there. So, I mean, that, that is part of what we got out of it was a lot of ideas. Um, a homeless bill of rights was one of them. And I'm sure there are others and you can tap in definitely. Yeah. Um, the one that stands out in my mind was the idea of a co-op, right? So how can people uh, work together, live together and really pull their resources to support one another um, in order to have, you know, safe, accessible housing. Uh, the other piece I just wanted to highlight that Cheyenne shared, um, and I, I just, I guess for the uh, listeners to really focus on is that individuals, that these are people, right? And I think a big challenge because of the way it's portrayed in media and the way that people talk about, quote unquote, the homeless as though they're objects rather than human beings is to recognize that these are people who have aspirations, who want to, you know, have a home. They want to have, they want to support their families or they want to create a family. And I think that that often is missing from the narrative. And that's something that we also talked about right at the launch is that we need to take back these narratives, right? The people who are being impacted, you cannot let the media and the politicians and not that all politicians are bad and speak ill of people experiencing, you know, housing instability or those that are unhoused, but oftentimes it is these sound bites and they're very objectified. And so how do we re-engage the humanity of individuals so people really understand that, unfortunately, it could be us, right? Especially I think right now, I think the I'm not excited about COVID in any way. <laughs> I think one of, I, I should say, I hope that what COVID uncovers for us as a community and as a society is the glaring inequities. The fact that we should be housing people, housing should be affordable. And if it's not affordable, then instances such as this are exacerbated, right? It's much harder to not spread something when you don't have a house to, to be in shelter at, right? Stay, stay at home. I don't have a home. So how can, I, how can I stay home and not spread? So I think it's just really important that we underscore the structural piece here, that this is uh, a form of violence, that not providing these basic human rights, not providing these structures of housing, of healthcare, of well-paying jobs, right? It, it's detrimental to everyone and no one is immune from it. And so I really um, am hoping, right, that some of this comes to fruition. And I think that for me, um, I, I also sat in on most of that session um, because that's a lot of the work that I've done previously, more, uh, more so focusing on unaccompanied youth, right, who don't have um, a home and don't have the consistent care of a parent or an adult to support them, right, as they're kind of uh, transitioning into adulthood. Um, but to me, the co-op idea was just like, that makes perfect sense. Like, yes, let's try to allow people, and allow, I don't even want to say that, to create conditions where people again can take back this narrative who they can take back their power and they can demonstrate right to others that they do have the capacity unfortunately they don't have the opportunity yeah i'm so glad you you put it just like that because 
I remember the gentleman who um, came, uh, who had the idea of the co-op, of, of somehow pooling resources, benefits that people are due and being able to pool them in some way and having more power together than apart. And I was like, wow, that's really profound. Just a guy that I just met that night. Um, and it really struck me because of exactly what you said. When you hear people's stories and it personalizes it, you realize that it's not a nuisance or it's not like a, a thing that we're supposed to like deal with in some way. It's a bunch of human beings that don't have a place to st aren't aren't secure in their home or their body. And like you can't look at it like data. Like it's not math. And and I think people get stuck in this idea. Well, like if we look at it like a, a like a like a calculus problem, and we can come up with we can d dial this and and turn this up and do this and do that, um, you have to just you have to just deal with people. And the only way people realize you have to do that is to hear stories like that. So it was really like um, yeah, it was very profound. And and part of where we want to head as a campaign is to allow for people who experience real life and the implications or I should say the who experience the um the real the real life implications of these policy decisions we make um around how we want to run our economy how we want to make housing accessible or inaccessible you know we often hear about well what does the stock market look like how's the real estate market looking like and it doesn't give us an idea of okay well what percentage of the United States is actually literally living under a, a you know underneath of a a roof that isn't meant for them to be living under um and what percentage of people are living uh, you know insecurely you know a lot of the measures we do have aren't necessarily looking at individuals who who are living housing 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 insecure and so part of the the goal of the campaign is to have neighborhood teams and so those neighborhood teams will have people who care about those four issue areas that we talked about and they will be able to work through uh, what it looks like in their in their neighborhood and how it's impacting their neighborhood and lead the debate around it and frame it around that. When you walk into city council and you hear um, a person giving, for example, what we want, we wanna walk into city council and hear a person giving a testimony to uh, uh, council people saying, hey, you know, what this bill is going to do to me will improve my community, it will make my community this, it will make my community that, or it negatively impact my community in such and such ways. But if you only have um, one or two people from a space saying it or speaking on it, you lose that emphasis on, well, how does this really impact residents living in our, in our city? And so we, we really need to ensure that this campaign is led specifically by these neighborhood teams that are willing to go out and say exactly how they're feeling, exactly what their needs are, and exactly what they've experienced to the people who are making decisions about our, our, our neighborhoods. If we don't do that, I can guarantee you we will reinforce the inequities that we have. Um, we will reproduce them. And at, I think at worst, one of the worst things we could do is we could make it so that we get to the point where the city no longer looks the way it looks. Um, we're a majority black city. We are a city that is super diverse because we have lots of Latinos here. 
We have lots of people who are of Asian descent. We have lots of people who are white. And we are a city that is also extremely class diverse, socioeconomically diverse. Um, there is a lot of different voices in the city that are underrepresented in our decision making. Um, and yet, you know, we have so much of an opportunity right now to, before we get gentrified, uh, to make a, a, a point for ourselves and to fight for ourselves. So I'm really excited about the work we have ahead. Yeah, I, I do. I do want to talk about some of the other sort of pillars or, or uh, breakout sessions. But um, Anne mentioned something about the coronavirus and the situation sort of bringing everything into relief and maybe people. I, I read a, I read a passage a few weeks ago uh, from Camus uh, novel. Uh, the uh, the plague. And I found it apt simply because he makes the point like now that working people and poor people are sort of not just the only ones that are feeling the brunt of some social problem. Now that it's everywhere, people now have this opportunity to reflect and say, oh, like the realities of everything are put in front of you. And so it gives people the opportunity to sort of exploit that. And... Um, I've been reading and trying to follow what some of the big cities and the hardest hit cities have done with the unhoused uh, population. Um, New Orleans, uh, London, San Francisco have been the three that I've sort of been following closest. And I know, you know, New Orleans and London at least have been moving people into, into hotels um, and trying to make sure that they're separated, they're getting meals, they have access to laundry. Um, and it really sort of shows people like, if you want, if you actually want to do something, it's not that, it's actually not that radical or difficult. You just find a place where people can be safe and, and comfortable and then try to do something else with them. And I wonder whether you get the feeling that um, through this sort of crisis, um, that is going to start to happen, especially with housing. Um, so I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Oh, my God. <laughs> First of all, you know, I got to say it because we were just talking about it. Me and literally were just talking about this. Oh, boy. First Here we of go. All, listen, every single thing that is a problem right now because of Corona could have been solved had we been listening to people asking for Medicare for all, for housing to be a human right and all those other big ideas you know even a universal basic income yes i did it and we didn't do it we didn't do it we ignored each other we just stopped we didn't we did not do it the fight is out there and people want it but the the people who are in power did not do it and it bears on them all the blood that is is being lost right now all the all, all the blood is on their hands all the lives that are being lost is on them because they decided and neglected to make the 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 moves that need to be made to ensure that we had the biggest safety net we could ever make. I have a very big concern that, you know, the people who I want at the front of these issues that, be, you know, beyond homelessness and housing um, will be too busy picking up the pieces in their lives to be able to get in this fight the way that I want them to be able to be. We have a really, we have got to be really careful about how we make it easy as a community organizer. I have got to make it careful about how I make it easy for them to get involved. 
during this time um and how you know i'm i'm clear and understanding about people picking up the pieces here i do want people to change i don't think that decision makers are going to change look at 2008 get yourself right uh you can look at almost any any type of recession any type of economic problem any type of emergency crisis we've had in our past and you you can see that business as usual has happened and that preach, some preach of the, the truth movies, preach the yeah, truth listen, you know i ain't gonna do nothing else but preach the truth. Do nothing else but like if we know that nothing has happened in the past we cannot have an expectation that things will shift without a major uprising from people like a class and race uprising i'm not talking about a civil war y'all get it right i'm talking about an uprising like a non-violent like truly civilly like civil disobedience it, it is not going to go back to normal with us playing the delaware way or playing these games where we try to be friendly with one another on issues that are taking people's lives that's just me and no the others believe it go ahead and you got it though we preach i will add to that i think there is also for for me when i think about my position right as a quote-unquote academic and the fact that we need everyone's uh, involvement in this. And I think for me, that's also why um, I come from a tradition. I mean, I don't know. Uh, Chicago is a very rights, not that we always get it right, but we have, we have a lot of resistance. We have a lot of, you know, this isn't right. We're going to do something. We're going to organize. We're going to work around it. And so as um, being in, in a position of quote unquote power in terms of access to data and information and audiences, right? At the outset, shared, I teach at uh, University of Delaware, <clears throat> excuse me, and it's in human development, family sciences. And so for me, it's very important that I tell my students our job is to basically put ourselves out of work because the goal is that we no longer have homelessness, that we no longer are dealing with domestic violence, that incarceration, right, is not an issue. And so I think it's very important that we have to think about our alliances strategically, that it is important that the people that are most impacted are at the forefront, but it also should not become the burden of those individuals because as Cheyenne pointed out, they're just trying to live day to day. And so for those of us who do have access to food, and housing and you know really some luxuries and amenities we should be using our voice and our data and our writing to be advocates right to support individuals who are experiencing these struggles um, and i'll say quite honestly for many of us i think especially for academics you know black and brown academics these are our families these are our brothers and sisters these are our cousins and our aunts and our grandmas and so we cannot detach ourselves from these realities and we should really be using uh, the little bit of power, right, that we do have to create more opportunities for those with the least amount of power. And as Cheyenne said, the, the, those who are making the decisions are least impacted. And what I would add is those that don't have a say are most impacted and that has got to change. Yeah, the struggle absolutely continues, and I agree with with all of it. Um, you know, I hope and and since Cheyenne, since you since you brought it up, well, I guess we'll talk about it. Um, one of the things that has been happening, um, in, because of our situation, is uh, the idea of rent strikes have come back. Um, I know renters uh, were a big part of the the homes 
uh, kickoff, and, and that's another sort of avenue that you're looking at as far as what sort of policies can affect the people that most need them. So that's something that's happening, and people are understanding that, yeah, if this doesn't work, you know, it's all a game, and, and I can, you know, if, if I say I'm not doing it and everybody says it, then maybe we can all do it together. Um, the same thing with general strikes. Um, not really a housing thing, but um, you see Amazon uh, workers doing this. Um, you see the grocery store delivery people doing this. Um, Target somewhere, I think Target store somewhere in the country uh, walked out today. Um, yeah, I mean, you're. I, I hope that not only does it, not only does it create a, an environment where affluent professional sort of bourgeois people reflect on the situation but it also at the same time creates an environment where working people and poor people realize that oh they're it, it strengthens solidarity and so it really creates an energy where maybe more th stuff is possible that we can imagine outside of what people tell us is the real world um you know that's sort of what I'm what I'm hoping for um I guess that's sort of what Cheyenne is sort of digging at too I am and I think there's like a there's two sides to this resistance thing if you will um there's like the like very much disruptive side um that is in your face and I'm not going to partake in purchasing these things and I'm not going to partake in um dealing with these things and I'm going to march and I'm going to protest and they're needed and if we don't do them we're not going to go anywhere and then there's this other side to this work that we do. Um, and it comes back to the point that Ann made about co-ops and cooperatives, um, land trusts. So anti-capitalist uh, proactive things, I guess, that we can do. You know, um, one of the things I've always had an interest in has been the use of the land trust. And how can we ensure that land is taken off the market, dedicated to communities um, for a specific use but ensure that it can't be gentrified, I'm putting quotes around it, um, in the sense of being able to be sold, to be speculated upon, to say how much the land is worth or valued as opposed to how much it's not worth or valued. Um, the land sits as it is and it's used for that space. You can use these, these tools, these anti-racist tools that I really would suggest people go around and Google to start to kind of detach yourself um, from a system that allows for us to be oppressed, um, you know, class-wise, socioeconomically, and race-wise. Um, if we are going to make this fight happen, there has to be a combination of things like rent strikes or um, protests and marches and, and, and um, things like that, alongside with these uh, experiments, which are already happening, so I don't know if the word experiment's really a thing, but alongside these experiments in the city of Wilmington specifically on well, what does it look like to in, in put a land trust over on the west side? I live on the west side, so you know, I feel on the left side, you know what I'm saying? Hey, I'm, 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 you know, I, like I see you over here too. I know, I know, that's where I'm at. So, you know, but what's it look like to put a land trust over on the west side where only affordable housing can be? And how do you take those houses that are busted up on Broom Street looking real pretty and having so much potential off the market for $20,000, fix them up and put them in a space where they can no longer be speculated upon. Because I could tell you when people start going west of the uh, 
of the uh, riverfront start coming over here, they're going to look at them houses and think, oh my God, this is a single family home and I'm, 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 I'm in it. I'm on it. Yeah. Um, and There's so, no like, question. I really look at those. I want to look at those ideas differently. Um, not just looking at just how can we disrupt, but how can we build, you know? Well, again, and this goes back to the conversation we had before with Samuel Stein or the reason that we had to stand up and be vocal about the blight bill was because if you do look to commodify a commons or you look to if if you're if you're if you if everything has to lead towards a uh private profit if everything has to have sort of a capitalist take then all of that's going to so you have to fight that every step of the way it's completely anti-capitalist and that's what makes it so difficult that's why when you when you explain it, people are like, oh, that sounds a good idea, land trust. Like, it's like a Chris Willauer sort of thing. She gets you with a cup of coffee and talks about land trust and shit. And then you're like, yeah, it makes sense until, some, until you realize, oh, why, why, are, why is every power that be so upset about this? Oh, it's, it's completely anti-capitalist. That's why. Uh, you know, and I, it is. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we're in a weird, we're in a weird political environment. So who knows? Maybe this is all to be, uh, to be exploited. I don't know. I can say one thing that doesn't sit well with people saying the word anti-capitalist. So sometimes I don't say it. Sometimes I just say things like, well, what if we did this idea? Um, I don't know if you know this. The, the, the bunker the bunker is a very safe – even a virtual oh, bunker is I know. That's why I'm saying space. it. But if I was out in public, <laughs> I'd have been like, no, I can't say anti-capitalist because my people would look at me crazy. Well, let me ask you this. This is a, this is a, good, this is a good question. So if you guys don't mind and we can get back into it, we can cut some of this out if you don't if you don't dig it but like just a, as a political question um and i and 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 i don't know you know how you you know identify if you identify politically or whatever uh but you know bernard uh dropped out today you know it's kind of expected and um you know i don't you know i'm not with the with the club that just wants to pick at the campaign i'm also not with the club who says oh, it was inevitable that this was going to happen um but there is a critique that says you got to pivot away from anti-capitalist talk. Like you have to, you can talk about socialism, but you have to, you have to tie it more into FDR. Um, you can't, like, you can't say that Cuba was good at teaching everybody to read, even though it's true. Because people don't want to hear it, you know what I mean. To quote the famous uh, political strategist and raging Cajun, uh, people don't want to hear that shit. Like people just don't want to hear it, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't matter that it's true. Like they just don't want to hear it. So, yeah, that's it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting hurdle that you have to get over when you're like, oh, do you see how this is good for everybody? And 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 if it's good for everybody, everybody lives like in a nice community. People are like collect community collective like you know people don't just don't want to hear it come on Ann. let me hear it I oh my you. goodness i'm like so so well one when i moved to delaware i tried to not be politically affiliated because my challenge is that anyone who's in politics you have to buy into this current structure of u.s society so i think uh, for people, right, who are like, oh, we want Obama back. I'm like, uh, Obama wouldn't have been we there. I mean, I'm just asking you guys. We don't yeah. want that, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm under I, the impression we do not want that. <laughs> I just think, I just think that 
and, and he's, anybody who goes into the political arena has to uh, acquiesce, right, to some of these systems. Well, if, the one so, thing, if one thing that happened today does prove something is that you do have to acquiesce to these systems or else it doesn't work. I mean, there's that's so so to me, and like I said, when I first moved here, I was like, I'm not going to be politically affiliated because I just kind of want to see what happens. And then I couldn't vote in the primary because I didn't know in Delaware, if you don't claim a political affiliation, you can't vote. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay, so let me redo this. <laughs> and now I have to affiliate. Right. Um, I think if I could not be affiliated, that that would be my choice, not an option. Um, so I did go Democrat because you know, supposedly it's more left, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, I think for me, uh, when people say collectivity, socialism is anti-American, my response usually is, um, as, as a country, we claim life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so I feel that it is very American that I am pushing for a structure that allows everyone, regardless of their social standing, regardless of their socioeconomic status, status um, definitely if they are uh, non-white, right, so for black and brown folks, if we have systems in place that allow everyone to truly access life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So for me, that that is very American. And if that means a collective, uh, you know, approach to this work, which the current system isn't working for the majority of people. We know this. Um, so I think it is the, going back to a comment earlier, it's the, the discourse, right? It's the narrative that this one thing here is American, that capitalism is American. Um, for me, it's actually not American because it is in complete contradiction to what we claim to uphold as American beliefs. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've never uphold, upheld those. Um, I can say this, just if it's any, I mean, it's probably cold comfort, but since you're new here, I can tell you that we're all in the same boat, you know, um, you know, if you want to, you know, if, if you want to be part of an insurgent sort of electoral movement, whether it's, um, Carrie Harris or Jess Grain or some of the uh, state representatives and senators who are getting primaried, like you just have to bite the bullet and be like, I'm a Democrat. But like we like, believe me, when you're in our circles, we know we like we don't have to say we don't have to say it. We know. I so appreciate that. Re I appreciate rest rest, so true. rest, <laughs> rest assured. Rest assured. We all we all know to score. So. Let me make the, the, the one thing that I know needs to be said in terms of the Holmes campaign. The Holmes campaign is nonpartisan. So y'all get that right. Holmes campaign is nonpartisan. Taking my Holmes campaign afro off, putting my new afro back on. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure in Delaware um, you can make it politically without being a Democrat. But I can say this, that as soon as primaries are over, I go back to being an independent. Um, I'm from here, so it's easy for me to just be like, I don't really care what y'all need or what you want, because I'm still going to be over here on Lincoln Street, sweetheart. But like, it, it's just one of those things that like, I, I do not believe that, that I have to ascribe to either one. And independent sounds like it, it, it lets me kind of sit in the corner and watch until it's ready for me to pop in. Um, but I can say that I am disappointed that Bernie 
dropped out, um, extremely disappointed, and I'm extremely disappointed with my options uh, in November. And I can also say that I do not think that the work that we do is going to work <laughs> well um, under the idea that you cannot commodify certain things and that you can't make profits off of certain things. Um, so let me put it like this. Our, our ideas, I think, about where the system should go and the world should be are directly in opposition with what the, the outcomes are with a capitalist system. And while I may not go around saying to people everywhere I go, because a good you know, community organizer knows how to message, that I believe that everything needs to be anti-capitalist. I believe that a lot of what we're looking for are going to require so many modifications to the system that we will never um, be able to call it a, a if, what do they call it, unfettered capitalist system. Um, it just, it will never look like that. Even, um, even there are some European countries that are even too capitalist in order for us to get to where we need to get. Yeah, I mean, the problem with, the problem here is that you can make the argument, and, and somebody mentioned 2008 and nine, what we, what we did with the bailout and what we just did with another bailout. And, uh, you know, if the, if the federal government can capitalize, can capitalize banks, and the federal government can make up, can do quantitative easing and just print money to make up bond differentials. If they can do all that for banks, but they can't ensure everybody's housed, that's a problem. Like, because it, that's not capitalism, that's, that's sort of fascism. I mean, it's an and, issue of values. Yeah, and, and but in Delaware... Political the will, for sure. Yeah, the, the, and in Delaware, it's, it's especially difficult because, again, we set up a tax haven here. So we, all of the issues that are inherent in the conflicts that we're talking about, capitalist versus anti-capitalist, are hyper-normalized here. Because the only way this tax haven works is through... Uh, Inter is through government intervention on the side of capital. So it's so and it's blatant, and so it's it's. I mean, we're we're fighting. Uh, I mean, it's not just an uphill battle. It's you know we're running against. We're on the front lines of it. We're running against concrete walls here. I just Agreed. yeah, absolutely. Um, I would also say you just made me think about. Um, I'm doing a Cheyenne here. It's coming back to Holmes campaign. Um, in terms of, right, these systems, I just want to also recognize, uh, we talked about renters, right, um, and definitely unhoused folks, but um, our folks coming home, right, from um, incarceration. And so thinking about that system and how that system is very raced and classed. And um, it is a, a mechanism, right, of oppression. It is a mechanism of disenfranch uh, disenfranchisement in particular for communities of color. And so I just think when we think about systems, we also have to think about how a system such as prison or jail, right, where, where I'm from right now, unfortunately, Cook County is the largest supplier of mental health in the state of Illinois, which is the prison system, right? And um, I think for me, some of what I see coming down the pike is kind of past experiences in the work that I've done in Chicago and trying to kind of stop the bleed <laughs> before it gets to that point of, you know, we have to, um, what is the, uh, amputate it because it's just lost. Um, so I think the other group of folks that um, definitely I want to highlight in 
from this race class perspective as well is uh, folks who are coming home from prison and how even though you supposedly right did your time and you should come home and, and you've served the time and you're supposed to kind of quote unquote be free how in particular for affordable housing um, and even more specifically public housing often people are banned right from even getting access I, i've heard haven't seen it yet and because everything is kind of shut down right now that they're looking at changing some of the rules for Wilmington Housing Authority around folks that are coming home from prison. I really hope that they do that, that they think about at least an interim. And I would say this should be step one, not the solution. This should be the first step to a larger comprehensive solution so that people that come home from prison who, again, um, I think that's another population that is uh, definitely objectified and dehumanized. It's like, oh, those prisoners or those felons, you know, quote unquote, no, these are human beings. And because of the way, because of the dis disparities in sentencing, especially the racial disparities in sentencing, oftentimes people are incarcerated for minor crimes, right? They are not violent crimes. Sometimes they didn't even do the crime, but because they didn't have money for bail, right? Because they didn't have good representation, they ended up taking a plea bargain and now they're sitting in prison. And then they come home, quote unquote home, <laughs> they're released and they don't even have a home to, to come to. Yeah, I, this is something uh, we've talked about a few times before and it just shows that the system, like not only do, not only is it set up to you know, basically subjugate people and just put people in a pipeline. Uh, but when it comes to housing, uh, you know, you try to re-enter and, you know, there there are so many, you know, we make it so difficult. You can't live here. You got to do this. You got to do that. It makes it basically impossible to go to even get housing when you come out. Uh, I think you're ineligible for any kind of, uh, or they make it very difficult to get any benefit that you do if you're even eligible for anything. Um, but I, but I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people have mentioned that our new attorney general, uh, is trying to show signs of, um, of, uh, I guess we'll call it, uh, life, you know, that maybe we can actually solve some of these problems. Um, I guess it's empathy maybe, or maybe, uh, you know, she was always further to the left than we thought, but uh, do you feel any hope on the on this score on on, on things that are sort of connected to the criminal justice system? Because I do think that at least here, that is one of the areas that is getting a little bit of a, attention and and actually a little bit of movement from the activist side. So do you 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 feel like that has somewhere to go? I think there's lots of movement personally. Yeah, I do not think that we're um, close to finish. I, I think that there's a lot of scrambling to get some words out about where we want to be as a, as a state. Um, and that people are pretty, I think that there are some values that are out in the community that are being said out loud about where we want to go as a state. Um, some of them differ with one another and are opposing, but there's definitely values. What I don't see is... Um, a lot of commitment from our um, our leaders in the state to ensure that we get there. Um, we, we've had a lot, if I always kind of put it like this, if I got to fight this hard for you to do the right thing, then <laughs> we got a long way to go. And I, I have found that with most of our work in, in criminal justice, 
um, we have had to fight really hard to get people to do the right thing. And a lot of people do not know um, that, you know, even though we've, we've got a lot of news around criminal justice happening in, in the state, that there is a lot of um, non-news, if you will, or things that are not happening and a lot of pushback from leaders in the state to get further to this idea, if I were to quote the smart justice goal, for example, that we need to reduce the prisons by a 50%. Um, and so it, 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 I, I am, I, it sounds pessimistic, but I guess I should preface it with this or phrase it with this. Um, it, it is going to put a, we have got to take a very, very, very strong stance against the idea that um, our legislators, that our administrations at all levels, that our courts, um, et cetera, can take a laissez-faire approach to this. Um, I'll give you one example. We're supposed to be letting people out of prison right now because of coronavirus. Um, we should be doing that right now because it's common sense. I have a brother that works in prison. I have a cousin that's in prison for a violation of probation, technical violation, nonviolent, no criminal issue, sitting in prison for eight years that I can't get out. And so I know that right now we have a system that is completely messed up um, and that I don't have patience for the back and forth that our legislators, that our administrations, et cetera, give um, on why they don't want to do the right thing. So a lot of work ahead of us. I, <laughs> There's a I, lot I'll of work just, ahead of us. Yes. Go ahead. Um, I was just going to add to that. I think it's also with, you know, not just here in Delaware, but I think many governmental systems in particular around criminal justice and, and i have to say housing right because i do think there's definitely an intersection there that if you know you don't have safe stable housing then you often are out in the street more which then makes you more prone right to street types of behaviors and activities engagement all that kind of stuff um we often we as a society do not fund these the, these initiatives the way they need to be funded and then we say they failed and so i think that whatever you know the legislature decides to do they have to be clear that one we need time to do that right um is put on my researcher hat research shows it takes a good two to three years at minimum right to kind of get back on your feet and oftentimes programs are 120 days or six months and so how do you expect somebody to really bear the fruit right of this quote-unquote opportunity if you don't give them the time and the funding that they need to actually put these things into place and so i think um, part of the advocacy also needs to focus on programs initiatives that are well funded that are research informed right what is it the data tell us and not in this abstract way right not like oh this percentage no what do we know about applied science what do we know about how these theories right that we want to talk about in classrooms or in higher ed what do we know about how they work on the ground or how they don't work right when it comes to the actual human component of implementing policies and programs and so i think it's really important that when we we talk about advocacy, it isn't um, only coming up with the solutions in terms of proposing what we think is best, but it's also that political will to put the funding into 
the program, right? We, we know this nationally, we spend more to incarcerate than we do to educate. And then we wonder why we don't have the best, you know, outcomes for young people, in particular, those that rely on public education. And I'm definitely an advocate. I'm a public school, everything, elementary school, high school, college, like I always did public school. Part of that, right, comes along with my own class standing and what I have access to. But I definitely believe that if we put the resources into these structures that we can have amazing outcomes. But it has to be comprehensive. It has to be long-term. It can't be these little Band-Aid approaches. And so I do really hope, kind of like Cheyenne, I try to, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but this proposal that they have for folks coming home, I really hope that they, you know, the information that we were able to gather through the Homes Campaign um, launch, that they listen to folks that are coming home from being incarcerated and really take to heart, right? And, and not just in an emotional way, but really take it to heart in terms of this is the approach we should be taking so that it turns up in our policy that it is formerly incarcerated folks, that it is unhoused folks, that it is the renters who are saying, no, this is what we really need. And then that becomes our policy and that people stand behind it with their money. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to I'm going to uh, sort of cap this off by making this this point. And, um, you know, we talked a little bit about the class dynamic of this. And Cheyenne talked about a little of the political dynamic of this and how, uh, you know, we're sort of, you know, we're, we're a little disappointed about Bernard dropping out today. And um, one of the one of the arguments that you'll see uh, now as we move forward is this idea that. Uh, and I saw it a few times today that, um, you know, really what the vote about in November is the replacement of Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. And that might be true. Uh, but what I can tell everybody making that argument is this. The folks that um, are housing insecure the folks who are unhoused, working class folks who are dealing with friends and family who are unhoused or who are coming out um, of prison or who are renting. And these folks are in sort of key places like Milwaukee, like Philadelphia, like um, Detroit, Flint, Michigan, you know, in states that, you know, four years ago they weren't interested. They don't fucking know who Ruth Bader Ginsburg is. And they don't care. And, the, and, and, and uh, there's reasons that they don't. So when you make sort of political arguments, you should really think about the folks that you're talking about that you're trying to engage. Because um, I think we're missing, uh, missing a really big trick. And... Um, it's going to cause a lot of suffering, I think. And it's a, it's a big shame. Um, Anne and Cheyenne, I really appreciate you guys uh, taking the time and doing this under uh, sort of strange and uh, kind of scary circumstances. But thank you. I'm glad uh, your your family and uh, your your you and everybody around is safe uh, and uh, healthy. So thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. Well, um, 
I uh, I want to tell you that the show is uh, sponsored unofficially, officially by Two Stones uh, Pub and Brewery. Greg not only came today and uh, gave me a six-pack of the Two Stones Pilsner, Susan got a, a four-pack of the Big Stout, uh, the Baby Bobs, which I'm going to try to steal two of them. She's got her eye on them. I'm going to see what I can do. But uh, thank you, Greg. Thank you, Two Stones. Folks, we're going to keep coming to you uh, from, you know, whatever we can. We're in bunkers. We're, we're, we're sterile. We're, we're disinfecting. We're doing everything we can to stay safe. Um, we're going to keep up the fight, and we're going to do what Bernie said today. The struggle continues. So um, thanks, everybody. Speak to you soon. Left is best.